Please find your way in Mark chapter 12. I hope you've been blessed by our study of this letter. You know, the book of Mark gets overlooked a lot of times, but as we can see, it's rich. It's rich, and, and we will get through it one day. We're just not going to be in a hurry. I'd rather take our time and know the scriptures. Lots going on here in chapter 12. Passion Week crossed just a few days away. Jesus has entered into Jerusalem. He's teaching with authority. The tax from the religious establishment has, has increased. And their goal, their goal was to turn the people against Jesus. You see, Jesus' teaching did not line up with their teaching. They didn't like that. They had no answer to his teaching. So they came at Jesus with a series of questions trying to trap him. And maybe you could hear the conversations among the religious establishment. Hey, what we need to do is to get Jesus to talk about paying taxes. You know, if he would say that we have to pay taxes, then the people will hate him. If he, if he says, do not pay the taxes, then the Roman government will arrest him and take him out. Well, that didn't work. Pay your taxes, sure. But more importantly, give to God what is God's, Jesus said. That messed them up. They didn't see that coming. They didn't see that putting God first is how we are to live our lives. Selfish man will always put self before God. And that will always make a mess. Amen. They then sent in the Sadducees to try to trap Jesus with a question about the resurrection. They came up with an absurd situation about marriage, which they thought would make Jesus look foolish. But instead, they looked like fools in the end. Jesus does respond to their question. But he also points out that, that they have come to him with a selfish agenda. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? You are quite wrong, Jesus adds. Ouch. You see, when someone comes to the scriptures with an agenda like the scribes did, it changed how they, how, it changed how they looked at the word of God. If you come with an agenda, it will create blind spots you, you will not understand the reason God gave us the text, nor will you know the power of God. You will be blinded by your selfishness. Just know the pastors here at Living Hope do not create a sermon and look for text to back it up. We preach the text. And I'm stopping to, to here to point that out, and you know, to point out how important it is to know the scriptures, to know the true meaning of the scriptures. You hear us say all the time about the word context 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 we must keep God's word in context and, and and that's why we teach line by line so no it is our heart here that you know the scriptures because if you know the scriptures then you are able to apply them to your lives the reason we gather is to worship the one true God right that's why we're here and one of the best ways to do that is to study is to proclaim and to know the word of God amen so the Sadducees came at Jesus with an agenda, and it was revealed when Jesus said, you do not know the scriptures. That was strike two, if you remember. They, they, they give it one more swing. They send in the scribes to question Jesus' Jesus' interpretation about the, of the scriptures. 
And we studied this section of scripture last week and learned a lot, but we're going to dig in a little deeper, a little more today before we move on from this text. Very important. This is a very important uh, section of scripture, and it's one we should completely understand before we move on. And as we know, as we saw last week, it's one we are to live by. So chapter 12, verse 28, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he asked, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, talking about what's, what's going on here, remember this. As we go through the book of Mark, we look at the text through chapter 1, always. What's the purpose? Why did Mark pen this letter? It was so that people would know that the kingdom of God is at hand, repent, and believe in the good news. That's the message of God. That is what Jesus proclaimed. So as Jesus walked this earth, the kingdom was at hand, and he was preparing everyone for the kingdom to come. In a lot of Jesus' teachings, if you remember, he begins with, the kingdom is like this, and then he would go on and teach about it. He taught on the kingdom of God. He taught what, was, what it was going to be like and how we are to behave or how we are to act or, or as to live as one who is a partaker of the kingdom of God. From the beginning, that was God's plan. If you remember last week, we looked at Deuteronomy, and we saw how the people were at the doorstep of entering into the promised land. And at that time, Moses gave the people several messages about how they were to live and act when they entered into the land. Moses said, now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it. So, so Moses gives all these commands, and he makes the point that the only one that the only way that one will be able or seek to or desire to be obedient is that they must get their heart right first. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart. And these words that I command you, you shall they shall be on what? Your heart. Heart. In other words, you're never going to be able to be obedient to God if this is an external love. This has to be internal. The, your love for God has to be in, internal. It has to come from within. It has to come from the heart. It has to be on your heart at all times. God is saying to all of us, that, that is where it begins. That is where obedience begins. It begins with love. You can offer sacrifices you can keep all the rituals, you can keep all the festivals, but if your heart's not right, if your attitude is bad, then all of these 
quote, works are useless. Performing rituals, doing, quote, good works with a bad heart is not what God is looking for from his people. This is not what God wants. Doing it that way is not true love, nor is it true worship. You're just doing it to be doing it. Not the way we're supposed to do it. Now, one more thing that I want to point out in Deuteronomy, and I did not get to this last week, which is very important, as Pastor Jared pointed out, love my brother, knows the scriptures. But in Deuteronomy 30, I want you to see that from the beginning, God's plan was set in place. You know, when we go back and look in the Old Testament and we tie it back and, back and forth, you know, it, it, this, should, this should give us hope. This should give us encouragement. That, and because we know that, that God has been and will always be in control of all. Nothing takes God by surprise. So this is encouraging as we go back and see in Deuteronomy 30. We see that Moses is bringing the teaching to an end before they go into the, to the land. He, he's, he's, he's bringing it to the end. And listen what he says as he instructs Israel. And when these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. Did you hear that? To all the nations that the Lord your God has driven you. And return to your Lord, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and soul. Take these teachings. Take them among the nations. Take the teaching of the Lord to all the nations. That's what they were to do. From the beginning, the good news of God and his promised redeemer was for all the nations. Know that as you read the scriptures. Know that nothing takes God by surprise. His plan has, has been at work since the beginning. That should be encouraging to us. Verse 6 of chapter 30, Deuteronomy. Write this one in your margins right here with, the, with our text in March. Listen. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Know this teaching point right here. Physical circumcision was a sign of Israel's covenant with God. It, it was a marker that one was in the covenant with God. Now, when we read about circumcision of the heart here in Deuteronomy, it means or it indicates that Israel's being set apart to be able to love God fully inside and out. So we have the Israelites. They're getting ready to go into the promised land. And God says, it's about the heart. It's love from the heart that sets you apart from the world. But, but know this. It is the work of God. It is the work that God has done in your heart that enables you to love God. It is the work that God has done in your heart that enables you to love your neighbor. That's big news, as we will see. It, it is God that changes the heart of man. Now, move forward, back to the temple. Jesus is in the temple. He gives the same commands that we just read. He gives the greatest commandment, love God, right? We are to know that command and live it as we enter into the kingdom of God here on this earth. We find that same saying that we saw back in Deuteronomy. Listen, the same verbiage that God used back in Deuteronomy, same meaning here in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 2, Chapter 25 and 29 may sound a little confusing, but I hope I clear it up 
for you, so listen closely. Here's what Paul says. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes, um, becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely an outward, outwardly, one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Here's the point. An external marking means nothing if the heart is not right. Verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. So who changes the heart? The spirit, not the letter of the law. Just like in Deuteronomy, this text refers to having a pure heart separated unto God. Paul, Paul is tying all of this back to the scriptures that he had. Remember, all he had was the Old Testament. He's discussing the role of the Old Testament law as it relates to Christianity, as it relates to the kingdom of God. He argues that Jewish circumcision is only an outward sign of being set apart to God. However, if the heart is, sin is sinful, then physical circumcision is of no avail. It's no good. It's just an external act that means nothing. Rather than focus on external rights, Paul focuses, like Christ, on the condition of the heart, just like Jesus did that day in the temple. This is the greatest command. Paul is using circumcision as a metaphor. He says that only the Holy Spirit can purify a heart that sets us apart to God. Don't miss that point. Only the Holy Spirit can purify the heart. Only the Holy Spirit can set us apart to God. It's not the law that purifies the heart. Circumcision cannot make a person right with God. That means the law is not enough. A person's heart must be changed. God must do the work in the heart because only God can change a man. So how does this happen? Do we just walk down the street and all of a sudden a bolt of lightning hits you and bam, you know, and you start proclaiming, I have seen the light. Well, you might have if you got hit by that lightning, but it's not like that, okay? <laughs> I believe we can look at King David as a great example there. David realizes his sin. He realizes his sinful nature, and what does he do? He pleads to God. Listen to what he says in Psalm 51, 10 through 12. He realizes his sin, and he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. You see, when, when one recognizes that there is sin in their heart, when one recognizes that he needs to be forgiven of that sin, it is at that moment that he can or will cry out to God. He will cry out, create in me a clean heart. Because I see mine's dirty. 
It's at that moment that one will cry out to God, let your spirit circumcise my heart, Lord. Do a work that only you can do that cleanses my heart. Only you can do that, God. That's how it works. That's how salvation comes. That's how the spirit comes and takes up residence in the heart of man. We have a promise from God, and we know that God always keeps his promises. God has promised that every person who places his trust in the Messiah, God has promised that whosoever puts their trust in Jesus Christ, that is trust that Jesus alone has paid the debt that we, that we owe for our sin, God has promised that the Holy Spirit will indwell within you and change your heart, making you right with God. That's the only way. And when this happens, the angels are rejoicing in heaven and God is praised because another soul has just entered into the kingdom of God. So let me try to clear up what I just read. Let me do it with Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 14. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elements, elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him, that's Jesus, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who, has, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses, that's dead in your sin, and the, and the uncircumcised of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us, forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Write that verse in your margins right there. You need to know that. That sums it all up. It is God who changes the heart. And what's the result? What <laughs> happens when the Spirit of God changes the heart? This is something that me and Bickford have discussed. You know, it's like, what happens? How, how do I know that God has done what he has promised he would do? How do I know that God has done that work in my heart? Number one change that we have just learned, we are now able, we are now able to love because of what God has done. We are now able to love God with a love of intelligence, with a love of the will, with a love of purpose, with a love of choice, with a love of sacrifice, with a love of obedience because of what God has done in our hearts. Because of what he has done, we now have an intelligent love, an emotional love, a willing love, and an active love. It's an all-consuming love. We didn't have that before. That's a number one sign. Number one sign that God has done a work in your heart. Now, as I mentioned last week, do we have a perfect love? Do we love God perfectly? No. But we now have a desire to. We now seek to. 
we are now able to strive to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We are now able to fulfill the intent of the Ten Commandments and the other Old Testament laws because of the work that God has done. Because of what God has done, we are now able to start living out that love. We are now able to start producing the fruit of the Spirit. That's how you know that God has done what he has promised he would do in your hearts. We all know Galatians 5.20, the fruit, the fruit, it's one. You don't get to pick and choose, okay? One fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh, with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Well, there comes the greatest second commandment, right? Right there it is. Love your neighbor as yourself. We are now able to do that because of what God has done in our hearts. You know, you can't say anymore, well, that's just the way I am. You're not the way you am anymore. You are now able to not be that person. We are now able to do what God has called us to do because of what he has done in our hearts. I keep driving that home. Back to Mark Bickford again. <laughs> he asked this great question. He said, well, am I more patient because I'm getting older and stuff doesn't bother me as much? Or is that the work of the Spirit? <laughs> a great question, you know. I said, that's the Spirit because I know a lot of grumpy old people. <laughs> yeah, I want to look at you. <laughs> it, you. You know, that's the Spirit working. It takes an act of God to make an old person patient, doesn't it? <laughs> they get set in their ways. But, but it's a process. We we're talking about it. It's a process. You know, we don't get saved. We don't get hit by that bolt of lightning. And all of a sudden, we just love everybody. Everything's beautiful. You know, everything's perfect. I, I'm full of goodness. I'm so gentle, peaceful. I love everyone. Everyone loves me. No. It doesn't work that way. It's a process. There's a reason that we work on our, listen, our walk with the Lord. It's a process. We work at it. Progressive sanctification, you hear us say that all the time. Even though we are seen righteous by God because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we are not yet perfect. But because of what God has done in the hearts of us and the believers, because we now have the spirit living in us, we are now able to seek to love our neighbors. We, we get better at it. That's what I'm trying to say. We keep getting better at it as time goes on. Not perfect, but we have the ability to work at it and to get better at it. As I thought about perfection and looking at the perfect love and everything, God, in, in his amazing ways, he had my wife read me a quote the other day. A perfect church, you know, because we're made up of sinners here, she says, a perfect church is a group of imperfect believers who refuse to give up on each other. So there is a perfect church. I've always said it's not a perfect church. We're all sinners. But a perfect church 
is a group of imperfect believers who refuse to give up on each other. Love covers a multitude of sins, all for the glory of God. So this is how the ones who are partakers of the kingdom of God love one another. Loving others as we love ourselves should be seen when we love the ones in our home. Starts there. Should be seen as we, should be very visible to anyone who looks at the church family. Do we do what, the, what he said? Do, or do, we, do we live by the Spirit? Do we keep the Spirit? Or are we conceited, provoking one another, envying one another? Or do we show love? Loving others as we love ourselves is what sets us apart from the world. Think about that. That is not a teaching that the world teaches. It's about self. Look out for who? Number one. Loving others as we love ourselves is what sets us apart. As we take this love that God has given us out into the world, it should be visible. We have the power, we now have the power to do what God has commanded us to do. Commanded us to do. And the world will know that we are partakers of the kingdom of God by how we what? How we love. Amen? Now, after Jesus had perfectly answered the scribe's question, the, the, the scribe's question, you know, what, what's the greatest commandment? The text says at the end there, it says, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. They didn't ask any more questions because they were not prepared to go any further. Right? The, the leaders believed that, that with the three questions that they had come up with in their plan of attack, that would, you know, definitely one of those would have discredited Jesus and his teaching. No need for any more than three. We got them. So they didn't have any more they didn't have any more for Jesus, but Jesus had one for them. Look at verse 35. And Jesus taught in the temple. He said, how can the scribes, remember they're the ones that just, just came in him, how can the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. All right, we have to look at what's going on here. Why did Jesus ask them this question? What was the final charge that they will bring against Jesus? Blasphemy, right? Blasphemy. He claimed to be God. No man can be God. They never accepted Christ as God, right? All the miracles performed, you know, like the little ones, like bringing people back from the dead, you know, those little ones, did not convince the religious leaders that Jesus was God. A few did, you know, a, a few knew that only God could do the things that Jesus did. We, we read that. You know, Jesus teaching with authority did not convince them that, that he was God because the leaders never understood the truth. So here we are. The cross is just, just around the corner. 
It's only a few days away. And right after their attacks on Jesus, what does Jesus do? He brings up his deity one more time. One more time. Jesus is like, hey, while we're on the subject of who I am, explain these scriptures to me. One of the leaders may have said, we're not talking about who you are. You know, we just had some questions we wanted answered. But look back at what Jesus, when Jesus gave the answer to what was the greatest command. Listen. Verse 4. Hear, O Israel, what? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's big news. These are the words that the Jewish people, like I told you last week, has been re reciting for thousands of years. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Why is this such a big deal? The, well, they've been claiming that the Lord is one for years, not clearly understanding what that meant. So Jesus brings up what King David had said to show them that he was indeed God himself, that he was God in human flesh, that he is the Messiah. And that he and God, the Father, are one. He wanted them to know that he was indeed God. How did he do that? He quotes Psalm 110 to show that David, speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit, you know, reminding them, hey, this came from God. This is not David. Reminding them that this came from God himself, that David understood the Messiah to be his Lord. He pointed out that David understood that the Messiah would have authority over him, not just as a descendant. Everybody, everyone knew that the Messiah would come through the seed of King David. The Messiah would be a human descendant of David. You know, that, that's why we have the lineage in, in, the, in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus' lineage. It, it shows that his bloodline goes all the way back to David. Very important. But what they did not get was that the Messiah would also be God's divine son. They didn't put this together because maybe they had an agenda. Maybe because they were looking for a political savior, not one that can save them from their sins. Maybe because they were looking for a military savior, not one that can save them from the spiritual enemy. Maybe because they were looking for an earthly king, not an, ex not an eternal king. The religious leaders did not understand that the Messiah would be far more than a human descendant of David. The Messiah would be God himself in human form, much greater than David. So let's look at what David said again. To prove that the Messiah is David's Lord, Jesus quoted Psalm 110 here. This, let me point out, this is a messianic psalm. This is the most quoted psalm in the, in the New Testament. Everyone knew that this psalm was about the Messiah who was to come. Everyone knew that. It was about the Savior that God would send. So let me read to this again. David himself, speaking under the control and influence of the Holy Spirit, said, The Lord. The Hebrew word Yahweh, meaning God the Father. The Lord, God the Father, said to my Lord, that's David's Lord, the Hebrew word there, Adonai, which means Messiah. God the Father said to the Messiah. So let me read that again. The Lord, 
said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Sit at the Father's right hand, the place of highest honor and authority, until I, the Father, put your, the Messiah's enemies, under your, the Messiah's feet. That's how we were to read that text. Jesus brings up the fact that David called the Messiah Lord. This raised a problem. Jesus asked the question then, how then, or in what sense can the Messiah, David's Lord, be David's son? How can that be? How can that happen? The only valid answer, the Messiah is David's son and David's Lord at the same time. The only valid answer is the Messiah is both God, David's Lord, and man, David's son. Why did Jesus bring this up at that time? He wanted everyone to know that he is indeed the promised Messiah. He wanted it to be crystal clear that he is the one that fulfilled all the prophecy of the Davidic kingdom. Listen to what, listen to what the scriptures say about the Davidic kingdom. And tell me, do you hear Christ in there? David's descendant will be on the throne forever, 2 Samuel. David was promised that his line would last forever, Psalm 89. David's descendant will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His reign on David's throne will last forever, Isaiah 9. David's descendant will have the Spirit of the Lord upon him, and his rule will bring lasting peace, Isaiah 11. David's descendant will reign wisely, do what is just and right, and be called the Lord our righteousness, Jeremiah 23. David's descendant will be raised up by the Lord and will restore Israel, Jeremiah 30. David's descendant will be a righteous branch who will restore Judah and Jerusalem. David's descendant will rule over God's people and be a prince among them. David's descendant will be the people's king and shepherd. Did you hear Christ? Did you see Christ? The word is telling us that the Messiah will restore the future Davidic kingdom on earth. So there's no doubt that Jesus deliberately raised this issue so that his listeners might re relate it to him. When Jesus quoted Psalm 110, their ears should have popped up. Everyone who heard it should have known that Jesus was telling everyone who he was. He was the Messiah. He was God. He is the one that is bringing the Davidic kingdom to this earth. Jesus brought what? The kingdom of God to this earth. He is one who, who proclaimed from the beginning that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Oh, it's so important to know who Jesus is. It's so important to know the scriptures. Then Jesus, still teaching in the temple court, cried out, Yes, you know me, and you know where I am from. I am not here on my own, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him, and he sent me. Then they asked him, where is your father? You do not know me or my father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my father. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. I and the father are one. Therefore, the Jews certainly understood that Jesus was claiming to be God, and they sought to kill him because of it. 
What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy, blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus also affirmed his deity to the disciples. If you really knew me, you would know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father that, we, that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, do you not know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you are not just my own. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me. And I am in you. Jesus clearly taught and spoke and said that he is God. And he and the Father are one. Why is it so important to know who Jesus is? Why is it so important to know what the scriptures say about Christ? Because our atonement is at stake. Our salvation is at stake. If Jesus was merely a, a, a created being. If Jesus was just a descendant of David, then we would not have a no-so hope. We would not have a living hope in our hearts. If Jesus is not fully God, then we could never know if we are really saved. It took an act of God to save man from his sins. Jesus, the God-man, took the wrath of God for our sins that we may be seen as righteous through the eyes of God. Jesus, the God-man, paid the debt that man cannot pay. We must know why the God came, that God came to this earth, not only knowing who Jesus is, but why did he come? We all remember it. As even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. 1 John 5.20 And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Don't leave here not knowing that you know that truth. Because of what Christ did, because of what God did, we can partake in the kingdom. Christ came so that we can be in the kingdom of God with him forever and ever. And when we know that, when we understand that truth, when we understand what God did, when we understand that God changed our hearts, then there's no way that we cannot return that love to him and love him with all our being. When we understand what Christ has done for us, there is no way we can keep that kind of love to ourselves so let's go and love others as much as we love ourselves and tell them about the love that Jesus Christ has shown us. Pastor Jerry.